I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. has been sent. You've got mail. You've got mail. You've got mail. Hello, you Perkins tax preparation nutballs. Misty Yeager from HR here with your annual booze cruise wrap-up email. Once again, we chose Central Delaware's number six booze cruise sternwheeler, Prides a Woman, for this year's trip. This legendary vessel once transported slaves for the Underground Railroad. Now it transports people like us who enjoy drinking on bodies of water. America, guys! This year's cruise started with a bang when house band Mike O'Darby and the Skin Flutes accompanied Patty Shoals from the Earned Income Credit Department in a spirited rendition of White Snake's Here I Go Again. Patty has asked that the person who caught her bra please return it anonymously to her cubicle. Fun times. Fun times, everybody. Bad news central. We have unfortunately had to surrender our deck swabbing plus deposit due to an unprecedented 32 cases of seasickness this year. My bad, people. <laughs> Having Jello and Mendoza's Mexican vodka sponsor the party wasn't really smart thinking, <laughs> but it certainly was the most colorful layer of sick we've seen on the deck in years. Next year, they'll be covering the whole boat in a slick plastic cover for us. Special treatment, y'all. And considering the salary cuts we've made this year, you guys have earned it. Also, sending a big Perkins high five to Rick Bachman from Accounts Receivable, who's out of the hospital today. The Delaware Department of Health reminds us all that the Pokemoke River is not for doing cannonballs into. Also note, just because there is a conga line doesn't mean that you have to follow it no matter where it goes. <laughs> that was a lot of people to fish out of the Pocomoke River people. But overall, I'd say a great party with less injuries than last year on the Spirit of Fatima non-denominational attack sloop and fireworks cantina. Just a lot of lost limbs, a lot of lost limbs last year. And we are looking for a venue for the holiday party. I do have some place in mind that's super festive. It has over a year without an OSHA violation, and it is completely covered in plastic. It's, it's... Live 
completely covered in plastic for your protection. Tonight, memoirist Lydia Yuknovich, author and reluctant cult leader Chuck Palahniuk, and music from Blouse. That's tonight on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hommeister. And you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, wherein Scott sits in our audience, and in just one hour, the amount of time it took Franz Kafka's exterminator to arrive, he writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned during our show. And of course, music from our house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Ralph and Jim and Dave. So I mentioned earlier that we were going to have memoir writer Lydia Yuknovich on the show. Uh, not that I'm not that I'm speaking from experience, but her book could hypothetically make a person cry in the middle of the new release aisle at Powell's Books. <laughs> hypothetically. Um, and we also coincidentally have a member of her writers group, Chuck Polinick, on the show tonight. Yes. Chuck's most recent book, Damned, is a novel about a 13-year-old girl who dies of a marijuana overdose, then she ends up in hell. And it's Chuck's version of hell, which has a valley of used disposable diapers and a dandruff desert. And this got me thinking about hell and what my own personal version of it might look like once I get there. And I will get there. I'll knock on the door of a lovely house in the suburbs with a perfect lawn and shrubs pruned in the shapes of characters from Beauty and the Beast. The door opens and there she is, the eternal, infernal baby shower hostess. She's got giant, basketball-shaped blonde hair and a plastered smile like the Joker's. I can see all the baby paraphernalia and the game of pin the sperm on the egg set up behind her as she pulls me into Hell's vestibule. I look for the sign telling me to abandon all hope, but all I see is a painted wooden plaque that says, yesterday is history, tomorrow's a mystery, today is a gift, that's why it's called the present. (laughs) Isn't that so true, basketball head says, as she offers me a glass of Zinfandel from hell and tells me that they've just started opening gifts and only have 750,000 more to go. As I move toward the living room, a cacophony of oohs and ahs can be heard emanating from a group of dark forms and brightly colored sweater sets mixed with mariachi band doing Jack Johnson covers on the stereo. <laughs> After the 40th onesie is opened, I excuse myself to Hell's bathroom thinking I might be able to climb out the window, but I open the door to a huge convention center ballroom where Satan is giving an endless PowerPoint presentation on ethics to inside traders. <laughs> I close the door and run down the hall, but the floor turns into a giant treadmill and the sweater sets have turned to yoga pants and my digital readout says I have 200,000 minutes to go and my water bottle's empty and the view's on my mini TV and I can't change the channel and everyone except Elizabeth Hasselbeck is on vacation. (laughs) I try to jump off and amazingly the emergency cord works and and I jump off. Are you sure you want to get off? A pair of yoga pants asked me. I, I just have to fill my water bottle. Okay, but just remember, you're the one who has to wake up with you in the morning. She smiles. But the sweats made her mascara run, and she looks like Alice Cooper. 
I do lunges all the way to the front of the gym, and I lunge out the front door, and I spot a Starbucks next door and run in to find my ex-boyfriend sitting at a table together. Hey, glad you can make it. We were just going over all the reasons we stopped loving you. Uh, they're all holding binders with what look like reports in them. One of them has a pie chart, drools at night, 4%, rough heel skin, 8%, Horribly, almost painfully bad at sex, 88%. I tell them over the blasting world music that I have to go order a venti something, and I slip out the back door, which opens into a campsite at a folk festival. It's nighttime now, and the drum circles have started. I climb into a communal yurt to rest for the night. What are you in for, a businessman asked as he scratches under his wolf headpiece. I don't know, it could be anything really. Wrath, sloth, pride, lust, envy, gluttony. I didn't really have a favorite. <laughs> Greed was fun, he said, still pointlessly pressing buttons on his Blackberry. No service, of course. Well, there's service in hell, he just has AT&T. I lie down on the dirt floor and use one of the disposable diapers from the shower as a pillow. I gnaw on the Snickers bar I found inside as the drums drone on. Tomorrow I'm going back to the PowerPoint presentation. At least I can sleep there. guest is a band with roots in California and Portland and a record label in Brooklyn. They are currently making ethereal 80s tinged pop music out of a 6,000 square foot warehouse. A music snob friend likened them to quote, Mazzy Star, but if Hope Sandoval wasn't always riding a bummer. <laughs> Please welcome the dreamy sounds of Blouse to Livewire.
welcome to the show. This is Charlie Hilton and Patrick Adams of Blouse. Patrick, I read, a, I read an article. Um, it was interesting because I looked for past interviews with you guys. And if you do a search on blouse interview, then you find a lot of articles on the perfect blouse to wear for your job interview. Uh, so ask me anything about that, because I know a lot. But (laughs) I did read, Patrick, that when you guys met at design school, and you said that you'd always wanted to be in a band with a female lead. Yes, Um, guilty. What was the reasoning behind that? I just always really enjoyed female vocals. I don't know, they're dreamy, they're they're nice. Who are some of your favorites? They write about nice things, like Uh sugar and spice and things like that. (laughs) Shoes, right? Am I right, ladies? (laughs) (laughs) Who are some of your favorites? Oh, I love, yeah, Mazzy Star, of course. It's great. Um, there's more recent artists like Bat for Lashes. We're both really big Nico fans, actually, oh, yeah. too. Nico. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just a couple quick questions. Better 80s teen movie, Breakfast Club or Valley Girl? I have to say Valley Girl because I am a Valley Girl. <laughs> I, would I agree with, with whatever she says. Yeah. Um... Sixteen Candles or Say Anything? Ah, Say Anything. Oh, Sixteen Candles. Oh. <laughs> it's, the it's, tough. it's the breakfast cake that does it. Or the, I know, the it's the cake. last scene over yeah. the breakfast cake. Yeah. The breakfast cake. I'll take Cusack anytime. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. no. I would, I would as well. I would as well. And one last question. I saw that you guys were just in New York City. You played a couple of, of shows in Brooklyn. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, Brooklyn and Portland are in sort of a battle to the death for the city with the largest population of hipsters who are way cooler than you. <laughs> so do you guys get a feel for who might be inching forward in that contest? We're currently participating in this contest. But... Yes. <laughs> so you um... can't discuss it? <laughs> we would be yeah. biased. <laughs> we would be biased. Um, Well, that was a beautiful song, and we are going to see you right toward the end of the show with another song. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. It's Blouse, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. We're happy to be here. That was Blouse on Livewire Radio. Music tonight brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, Sindog. It's an organic cinnamon roll that contains 100% grains, so you might not feel so bad about having that eighth piece. Dave's Killer Bread, making the world a better place, one loaf of bread at a time. We'll be right back.
Um, hi, I'm Josh. I have a 245 appointment. Oh, come in, come in. Welcome to Imperial Trust Investments. My name is Jennifer. Please sit down. What can I do for you today? Well, Jennifer, I just got a, um, a pretty substantial inheritance, and all my friends oh. tell me that I should invest in something. So here I am. Oh, How do well, we get started? Well, Josh, at the end of the day, good financial management is all about making your money work for you, usually in ways you wouldn't have thought of on your own. Here's a freebie, magic lamps. Magic lamps? Hmm. The kind with a genie in them will, that will you know, grant you wishes. Buy one for a million dollars, then wish for two million. Boom, you've just doubled your money. Interesting. But I'm already pretty comfortable. What uh, I'm worried about is security. Can, how can I keep my money safe? Give it to a dog. They don't know how to use money, so they can't spend any of it. I do have a dog. Oh, not your dog, silly. <laughs> a stray dog. But what if the dog runs away? Oh, Josh, you can't invest in a free market without some risk. <laughs> I mean, sometimes stocks tank, right? And sometimes the dog you gave all your money to runs away. Now, there's been a lot of talk about Ponzi schemes and toxic stocks. Let's see if we can get you into some of those. Uh, I'm not really sure about stocks. What else can I invest in? Pork belly. Like uh, the commodity? Like the sandwich. I had a pork belly Cubano last week that was just... Get 15 pounds of that and cure it in your refrigerator for a week, then you'll have some delicious sandwiches. Pure profit and sandwiches. Delicious. What about gold? Why stop at gold? What about gently used forks or tigers? That sounds good. How about retirement? Oh, that's a good question. A 401k is one way to go, but on the other hand, that is really boring. (laughs) What about finding a passageway to an alternate universe very much like our own, but only there you're a millionaire, and once there, kill that version of you, dissolve the corpse in acid, and then slip quietly into bed with your new, more attractive wife. Oh, I'd like to see a 401k do that. Wow. Jennifer, I hadn't thought any of that. Um, in the meantime, what about like a, uh, like a savings account or something? You know, Josh, I- I'm liking high-yield credit unions today. Well, I mean, high-yield for us because we're going to rob one and then burn it down today. I have some ski masks and gasoline in my trunk. Can you drive really fast? Are you cool? Oh, ha, ha, looks like my 3 o'clock is early. Um, we'll have to wrap this up for now, but help yourself to an unregistered handgun on your way out. There's a bowl of them at the reception desk. Imperial Trust Investments. We don't know what we're doing, but don't worry, neither does anyone else. That was Trisha Ferguson, Paul Glazier, Darius Pierce, with sound effects by David Ian. Chuck Palahniuk says of Lydia Yuknovich's memoir, The Chronology of Water, I've read this book cover to cover a dozen times. I'm still reading it and will return to it for inspiration and ideas and out of sheer admiration for the rest of my life. Lydia is a teacher, a small press publisher, and a really, really good swimmer. Reading an excerpt of her memoir, please welcome Lydia Yuknovich to Livewire. I'm going to read a little piece to you from a, what's been called the boob book. <laughs> On sound and speech. 
In my house, one of the corners of the living room was called the crybaby corner. When you cried, you had to go stand there facing the corner. The principle was one of shame. My sister tells me that when she was sent to the crybaby corner, she would cease crying almost immediately. In fact, I never remember seeing her cry. I can picture her leaving the wall with a face as stoic as a nun's, almost like an adult. But by the time I arrived in the family, eight years after my sister, the laws of the house were in place. But none of them seemed to work on me. By the time I was four, I'm telling you, when I cried, it was epic. (laughs) I wailed, and I cried all the time. I cried when I had to go to bed. I cried in the night. I cried when people I didn't know me looked at me. I cried when people I did know talked to me. I cried when someone tried to take my picture. I cried being dropped off at school. I cried when new food was presented to me. I cried when sad music played. I cried when we put the ornaments on our Christmas tree. When people would open the door to my trick-or-treat at Halloween, I'd start crying when they gave me candy. I cried every single time I had to go to a public restroom or in bathrooms in anyone's house or bathrooms at school until I was in seventh grade. I cried when bees came near me. I cried when I wet my pants in kindergarten, first, second, third, and sixth grade. When I got any bruise or scratch or cut, I cried when they put me to bed in the dark, when strangers spoke to me, when children were mean, when my hair was tangled or ice cream hurt my head or my underwear was inside out, or I had to wear galoshes, red galoshes, I cried. I cried when they threw me in Lake Washington for my first swimming lesson, when I got shots at the doctor, at the dentist if he just moved toward me, when I got lost in grocery stores, when I went to movies with my family. In fact, one of the more famous of my crying stories happened when they took me to see Gone with the Wind. When the little girl has that pony accident and Rhett leaves Scarlet, my grief was inconsolable. (laughs) Not for a night for weeks. But mostly, I cried when my father yelled, and sometimes also I cried when he entered the room. When my mother or sister were sent to retrieve me, the victories were small, about the size of a child. It was my voice that left. In my house, the sound of leather on the skin of my sister's bare bottom stole the very voice out of my throat, for years of childhood, the great thwack of the sister who goes before you, taking everything before you were born. The sound of the belt on the skin of her made me bite my own lip until it bled. I'd close my eyes and grip my knees and rock in the corner of my room like a little monkey. Sometimes I'd bang my head rhythmically against the wall. I still can't bear her silence while being whipped. Why didn't she cry? She must have been 11, 12, thwack, 13, thwack, 14, before it stopped. Alone in my room, I put a pillow over my head. Alone in my room, I got my baby blue parka out of the closet and buried my skull in it. Alone in my room, I drew on the walls, knowing the punishment, pushing the wax and color as hard as I could against the wall until it broke, until I heard it stop, until I heard my sister going into the bathroom. I steal inside and hug her knees because I was short. My silent mother ghost would make a bubble bath and leave. My sister and I would sit in it together. Voiceless, we would soap each other's backs and make skin pictures with our fingernails. If the picture was on your back, you had to guess what it was. 
I drew kid things. I drew flower. I drew a smiley face. I drew a Christmas tree that made my sister cry, but not out loud. No one could have heard her. Only her shoulders and back moved. The red marks of child fingers remaining even after the soap washes off. When my sister left the house, I was 10. I didn't speak to anyone outside of my immediate family until I was about 13, not even when called upon at school. I'd look up, my throat the size of a straw, my eyes watering, nothing, nothing, nothing. Or this, if an adult required me to speak, I'd hold one leg up stork-like with one hand, and with my other arm, I'd put behind my head in an L-shape. Like this, little bird ballet, little girl making an L for Lydia with her arm because her mouth didn't work. Anything but speech. All those years with my sister in front of me, I was silent, and after she left, it's terror stealing the voice of a girl. Sometimes, so I think my voice arrived on a piece of paper. I had a journal I hid under my bed. I didn't know what a journal was. It was just a red notebook that I wrote pictures and true things and lies in interchangeably. It made me feel like a person, not the kid who lived in my house. I wrote about my father's angry, loud voice, how I hated it, how I wished I could kill it. I wrote about swimming, how I loved it, about how girls made my skin really hot about boys and how being around them made my head really hurt, about radio songs and movies and my best friend's Christy, and how I was jealous of Katie, but also pretty much I kind of wanted to lick her, and how much I loved my swim coach, Ron Coke. And I wrote about my mother, the back of her head, driving me to and from swim practice for years, her limp and her one leg shorter than the other, her hair, how gone she was selling houses, winning real estate awards into the night. I wrote letters to my gone-away sister that I never sent. And I wrote a little girl dream. I wanted to go to the Olympics, like my swimming pool teammates. When I was 11, I wrote a poem in my red notebook that went, In the house, alone in my bed, my arms ache. My sister is gone. My mother is gone. My father designs buildings in the room next to mine. He is smoking. I wait for 5 a.m. I pray to leave the house at 5 a.m. I pray to swim. My voice, she was coming. Something about my father's house. Something about girl and alone and water. Thank you. Lydia's book is The Chronology of Water. You're listening to Live Wire Radio. Tonight's show is brought to you in part by the Whole Foods Market and the Whole Kids Foundation, whose goal is to improve children's nutrition and wellness through partnerships with schools, educators, and innovative organizations like Food Corps. Information about helping children reach their full healthy potential can be found at wholekidsfoundation.org. 
Next up, he has been called the U.S.'s greatest purveyor of the grotesque. He's caused 73 people to faint at readings of his short story, Guts. And many of his fans consider themselves members of the cult of Tyler Durden after his highly successful novel, Fight Club, was made into a film with Brad Pitt and Edward Norton. We won't be talking about Fight Club tonight, however, due to the first rule of Fight Club. <laughs> Since then, he has written 14 books, including Survivor, Choke, Haunted, Lullaby, Rant, Pygmy, and Tell All, among others. His most recent book, Damned, is the story of a 13-year-old in hell. Please welcome Chuck Palahniuk to Livewire. <laughs> Welcome to Livewire, Chuck. So I want to talk about this passing out thing. Uh, you have lost 73 people to fainting at, at your short story, Guts. What does it feel like as a writer to actually knock people out with your words? It's, it's well over 200 people now. I just quit counting. <laughs> but the extraordinary part is when, from the stage, you see all these people who kind of hate each other, who kind of resent the fact that they're all crowded together and they have to share this space with people that are actually in physical contact. And then when one person faints, the entire crowd goes nuts because they think this person has died. Yeah. And from my perspective, I see the person waver and come into more contact with the people adjacent to them. And those people are just appalled that they're being touched so much. <laughs> By strangers, yeah. But once they fall to the floor, the entire crowd gets up, and they suddenly go from hating one another to really being completely enrolled in the well-being of this person on the floor. And as the person on the floor is revived, it's like watching Lazarus raised from the dead. <laughs> it is. Everyone there is euphoric. And the entire mood of the crowd has changed after that. Everyone is completely bonded by this witnessing of one person seemingly die and then come back from the dead. <laughs> and from where I'm sitting, I've got the best seat in the house. Sure, sure. But I mean, like, there are writers who uh, want to make people cry, and certainly, you know, if, when you write comedy, you have a specific goal, I want you to laugh. Well, what is your goal with, with these stories? How do you want to make people feel? Or what do you want, what message do you want to get across? In a way, it doesn't almost matter what they feel as long as they walk away thinking, I will never forget that. That is something, good or bad, that will stay with me for the rest of my life. Uh, mission accomplished, I'd say, <laughs> on that one. Absolutely. Um, and I, I, I read the story last night, and it's, you can find it online. It's on, I believe, your website. And it's extraordinary. Uh, you're in a writer's group, actually, with, uh, with Lydia and with thriller writer Chelsea Kane and uh, clown girl writer Monica Drake, Cheryl Strayed, a lot of, of amazing writers. And I spoke to Chelsea um, about uh, what you were like to work with in the group. And she said uh, if she brings in a story that's really gory that has the rest of the group pale, you'll say... Yes, but what does it feel like to drag a scalpel through flesh? Is it like cutting through the skin of an eggplant? Does it pop? Um, what makes you so comfortable with gore, do you think? Well, 
my theory is always to write to the, uh, to work to the strength of the medium. And that there are things that can be done in books because in books the thing is not literally having to be presented in front of people. And the book is going to be presented to people who have to be of a certain education to consume it. And it's also a very intimate nature of consumption. So it's one person making the agreement to read this thing. And so a book can do things and talk about things that no other form of mass media can. So that's why I say, you know, take those things to the extreme because this is the only storytelling form that can go to those extremes. Um, that's why I'm always pushing. This, this new book, I was really surprised by it. Um, uh, first of all, I mean, I, I've, I, I think that you've been funny intermittently throughout other books, but this, this book is pretty consistently funny, damned. Um, and it's actually coming out on October 18th. Um, uh, but also, you wrote it from the perspective of a 13-year-old girl. What made you do that with this book? My publisher. <laughs> Originally... The narrator was 11 years old, but the publisher thought she was just too smart, so the publisher asked to make her 13. And I argued that when we read Jane Eyre, Jane Eyre, I believe, opens with the narrator being seven years old. And she's seven years old, and she's intelligent, and she is well-spoken. But nowadays, if you have a seven, 11, 13-year-old character we're expected that they're going to be an idiot. And she's really snarky, which is great. Um, and also, and I don't think I'm giving too much away, but her name's Madison, and uh, she, she actually ends up doing fairly well in hell. And I found it really interesting. Um, local writer Karen Carbo wrote a series of books, the Minerva Clark series, where the 13-year-old girl got hit by lightning, and that's how she got rid of her self-esteem problem. And in, I, was, I found it interesting. It's like, oh, so, or you can go to hell, and you can, and suddenly it'll go away, because she became really powerful. Did you feel like that was a, a statement on your part? There's a kind of a, a form of storytelling where the narrator ends up in circumstances that are absolutely unbearable. Um, Shawshank Redemption. Uh, kind of a, a character who ends up in these terrible circumstances not fully understanding how they came to be there. Or uh, Judy Bloom's book, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, where this little girl, she's carted out from New York City into the suburbs. And it's basically, here's the rest of your life, make do. And so I wanted to write one of those books that are really about that very first day of the job, the very first day where you've ended up in some place you don't want to be. And what is the worst place you don't want to be? <laughs> that is hell. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and another, I get a little uh, irritated that all the Portland people I know have kind of abandoned discussing anything in terms of you know, hell or religion. That's kind of the new transgressive place. You know, it used to be that when I walked around with a black eye while I was writing Fight Club, people wouldn't look at my black eye and they would talk about the weather because they did not want to see this thing. And now, if you want people not to look at you, wear a cross. You clearly did a ton of research on hell and different versions of religions and their different versions of hell. I know that you were in kind of a dark place when you wrote the book anyway, but was it kind of dark to just be steeped in hell in this way? I wrote the book while I was taking care of my mother in the last year that she, as she was dying of lung cancer. And so she was very high, 
and behaving like the little girl that she used to be, which was terrific. And she was rereading all of her favorite books that she had read as a little girl. So those are all the books that Madison really loves. Uh, And so in a way, I was just kind of documenting this person that I had never knew that she had been, this wonderful sort of carefree person who was going to die. But I do regret the fact that I moved into her house with armloads of books about hell and demons. (laughs) And on her deathbed, I'm sitting next to her, reading these huge textbooks about demonology. That could not have been a comfort. (laughs) Well, but in the book, Maddie is, um, she's addicted to hope. Like, she just is not willing to let go of it. Was that sort of a reflection of what you hoped for for your mother? Oh, I think it always is that you hope something will happen. I paid $15,000 for that Tarsiva. That didn't work. And you can't get a refund. You don't get your money back on experimental (laughs) cancer drugs. No way. You're just out of luck. Right. (laughs) Down the toilet. Could have bought a car with that. I'm glad you could laugh. (laughs) And you don't get to tax deduct it. (laughs) Me with my bookkeeper. It was for my dying mother. Does that make a difference? So in the book, Madison, the protagonist says, what makes the earth feel like hell is our expectation that it should feel like heaven. And I actually, I read a study about Denmark being happier than the rest of Europe, even though they had really bad weather, bad food, and high alcohol consumption, because their people have low expectations. If we all expected less, would this be heaven on earth, do you think? That is the future of pharmacology. (laughs) Instead of... Managing your mood, it's just going to be managing your expectation. Mm-hmm. That way, when you walk in and it's just chocolate or vanilla, you're fine with that. Mm-hmm. What are your expectations? Are you a pessimist or an optimist? Um. No, I'm not, I think I'm a romantic. I'm one of these horrible romantic people that realizes that no matter how terrible it is, there will be another is. And just another chance for you to fail. (laughs) Sorry, that's me. That's totally me. That's totally me. Fail better. Yeah. (laughs) You're actually talking about uh, writing a YA young adult novel. Uh, You're holding it. Um, oh, so this one, this is the, the YA novel. Except for the part with the sex with the giant. Right. <laughs> There's a few things in here, Chuck, that I'd like to discuss with you if this is a YA novel. Um, wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> but it feels like the next step would be a children's book. If you, if you wrote a children's book, what would your children's book be about? You know, I, uh, I pitched it, and I shouldn't give it away, but I love the idea of... They have what they call body farms now. A, a body farm... Mary Roach writes about these quite a bit. They're these huge outdoor facilities where they take human bodies, dead bodies, and they distribute them in different conditions, partially submerged, hanging from trees, out in the open, and they monitor how they decompose, and they monitor 
all of the different effects of the environment on these bodies so that, so that they can do better forensic work at actual death sites. And so I love the idea of a little boy It's basically Christopher Robin in the Three Acre Woods. <laughs> but instead of Winnie and Eeyore and Kanga and Tigger, you have right. Rotting Corpse Number One. Sure. In partially submerged car. And these are his best friends. Yeah. You should talk to um, Disney about that as well. Yeah, or Pixar. I've got Tim Burton's number right here. <laughs> well, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. The book is Damned. Uh, the author is Chuck Palahniuk. Thank you so much for joining us. Chuck Palahniuk, everybody. regular segment, Livewire's The Best of Wikipedia. Tonight's entry, Chuck Palahniuk. Reading tonight's Wikipedia entry on Chuck Palahniuk will be Chuck Palahniuk. Chuck Palahniuk. Chuck Palahniuk, pronounced Chucky P, was born in 1935 on Skull Island, an unlikely tropical paradise in the Black Sea off the coast of Yugoslavia where the first rule about Skull Island is you don't talk about Skull Island. (laughs) And the second rule about Skull Island is whatever happens on Skull Island stays on Skull Island. And Chuck Palahniuk, pronounced Jock Chalalinsky, was born in 1996 with the publication of his first novel, Fight Club, And he was born in 1999 with his second novel, Survivor. And he was born in 2004 with his novel, Diary, when Willamette Week pronounced his writing was excretious, (laughs) which is spelled (laughs) K-R-A-P. And he was born again in 2009 when the Washington Post called his body of work brilliant, which is pronounced brilliant. And Chuck Palahniuk, pronounced Tyler Durden, pronounced Victor Mancini, was born in 2007 in San Diego at a Barnes & Noble when a protest group threw dead animals on the stage at his feet. And he was born in Brighton, England, when 18 people fainted in the span of a minute while he read his work. And he was born most recently, just three weeks ago, in Amsterdam, in front of 70,000 people at the Lowlands Festival, when hundreds of bright young readers threw their panties and their thongs on the stage around him. And Chuck Palahniuk. Self pronounced media whore, <laughs> pronounced glutton for punishment, will be born again October 18th 
with the publication of his 13th book, Damned. Yes, number 13. Because this is the promise of our destiny, that we should create ourselves and be destroyed, and create ourselves and we should be destroyed, and thus are we born every moment into our lives everlasting, world without end. Amen. That was tonight's Wikipedia entry on Chuck Palahniuk. Next time we explore the Wikipedia page of Paris Hilton, Korean war hero and UN goodwill ambassador to San Diego. That's next time on Livewire. You're listening to Livewire, the radio variety show for people who have ears and know how to use them. We'll be right back. people, it's time for the (laughs) audience haiku. Our audience has written haiku based on a single prompt, damned. And members of Faces for Radio Theater have chosen their favorites and will now read them with the help of Ralph Huntley. Audience haiku is, as always, brought to you by New Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring Hoptober Golden Ale. Five hops, and wheat malt mashed with rye and oats for a medium-bodied ale. Fact, hops make beer taste better. Fact, this beer has five different hops. You do the math. Thanks, New Belgium. All right, Ralph. Can I please get some music for an upbeat 80s couples comedy? Savings are growing, vacation plans are brewing, damn, birth control fail. (laughs) Oh, thanks, Johnny. Okay. Um, Faces for Radio Theater, I need uh, the sounds of little trick-or-treaters. And uh, David Ian, I need something spooky. This is good stuff. Keep it going. I step on the cracks. Break mirrors. Cut off black cats. Never knock on wood. 
Thank and you, James Grant. And now I will bring to the stage Lydia Yuknovich for a reading of her own original haiku. This might not be possible, but Ralph, is there any way you could play some chipper Titanic inspirational music? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the hell I long for rests under faith veils blue-black. Oh, secular bliss. Lydian Yuknovich. Great job, audience, on the audience haiku. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, once again, blouse.
And now, as promised, the man who's been sitting in the audience, working all night, trying to pull everything, all the complex layers of everything that's happened tonight into one clean, nice package. To sum it all up for us, please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I think I'd like to go on a booze cruise, but instead of a converted slave ship, I think I'd like to ride a dolphin. I know dolphins are an independent, majestic species with an amazing intelligence and a complex system of communication, but I want to ride one, damn it. I want to ride one so bad while I drink a Mai Tai like a raging drunk lone ranger in a Hawaiian shirt on silver with flippers. But with my luck in history, I'm afraid the beast would ride me straight into hell. True, we don't usually think of the eternal lake of fire as possessing marine life. But can't you just imagine being pulled across the river Styx by Sharon, past rotting corpse number one in partially submerged car, <laughs> and Flipper's cousin Ripper swimming up, raising his beautiful head to you, smiling at you with that curled up at the edges of his mouth smile, chock full of charm that only dolphins have, and you think, maybe hell will be okay. But then I know he'll spit a torrential stream of fire at me, burning off my life jacket. Yes, I would wear a life jacket crossing the river to hell. Thus exposing my happy Smurf knitting a hope sweater under a rainbow of muffins t-shirt. This is when the crying will begin. I suppose at this point one can only dance and cry like you're listening to blouse. Think about the dilemma dancing in hell would create. I say, if you're in hell, dance like you're in a 1983 junior high dance. <laughs> what would the demons do about that? Are they prepared for breakfast club tactics? If they laughed at me, their laughter would seem disingenuous. If they made me stop, that would make them appear out of control. If they tackled me, they would appear awkward. If they ignored me, that would raise the morale in hell. But chances are they wouldn't appreciate my ingenuity. They would just change my genes into red serpents, which would devour their way up my legs, spit out my genitalia, then burn off my shirt with the picture of Happy Smurf knitting a hope sweater under a rainbow of muffins t-shirt. <laughs> then I would be pissed. <laughs> hey, serpents, that's vintage. Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our great guests tonight, Lydia Yuknovich, Chuck Polinick, and Blouse. The Mutton Chops are Ralph Huntley, Dave Jorgensen, and Jim Brunberg. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Dave's Killer Bread, and our newest sponsor, Burgerville. Introducing Burgerville Radio, featuring music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Darius Pierce, Paul Glazier, and Trisha Ferguson, with sound effects by David Ian. 
Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, house poet Scott Poole, and Temple Lenz. Faces for Radio Theater was directed by Jason Rouse. Our recording engineer is Jonathan Newsom. House sound by Scott McLeod. Stage management by Matt King with thanks to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Vondrele and Ralph Huntley. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.